Richard Gombrich, who's uh, quite a famous Buddhist scholar, wrote a book that I found very interesting called What the Buddha Thought. And it's an exploration of the ideas of the Buddha, particularly in the context of his time. He says about the Buddha that he's a brilliant and original thinker. And I don't know if you agree, I certainly do. He also goes on to say that the Buddha belongs in the same class as Plato and Aristotle, the giants who created the tradition of Western philosophy. I think that his ideas should form part of the education of every child the world over, and that this would help to make the world a more civilized place, both gentler and more intelligent. So the Buddha was a great philosopher, a great explorer of the nature of the mind, but he wasn't just interested in speculation, in ideas. He was a pragmatist, and he had one interest only, the nature of suffering and the end of suffering. And there's often a a description of the Buddha as a doctor who diagnoses the illness and provides the cure, the medicine, for that illness. And the clearest teaching that he gives that's in that form is the teaching on the Four Noble Truths, which is what I want to talk about tonight. Now, ideally, we'd give this talk before the talk that Guy gave last night on dependent origination, because you can see dependent origination is actually an explication of the Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths is really direct pointing to the nature of suffering and the release from suffering, the dependent origination breaks that out into great detail of exactly how suffering gets caused through all of the prior conditions that lead to craving in the mind and then the becoming that results out of that. And it's interesting, if you read in the suttas the the life of the Buddha, the story of his awakening, when he describes his own awakening, he describes it in terms of understanding dependent origination, that that was central to his awakening. But when he goes to give his first teaching, his very first discourse, what he chooses to teach, to formulate what he has understood, is the Four Noble Truths. So can see it as very central to his understanding and that the rest of his many, many years of teaching were all variations or um, expounding on that theme of suffering and the end of suffering. And so in the Four Noble Truths, he uses a schema that we're very familiar with. In the Buddha's teachings, it's central of cause and effect, cause and effect, seeing the conditioned nature of experience. But the Buddha actually often reverses that. He does this in the Four Noble Truths, where he talks about effect, cause, effect, cause. This is the schema of the Four Noble Truths. The effect is suffering, the cause is craving. The effect is, is uh, release or nibbana. The cause is the Eightfold Path. And there's a real wisdom to that. As I said, as a, as a doctor, you could say diagnosing the problem, the problem or the illness is suffering and the cause is craving. So it's really being, again, very practical. What's the issue here and what's, where's the way out? And this is a, a scheme that he uses quite often. And I was thinking about this today, preparing for this talk. We, you know, think of the first two noble truths, suffering and the cause of suffering. We think of them as separate. But I really had the feeling today, 
they're not separate. Craving is suffering. It's not that, you know, craving causes suffering, but the very experience of craving is suffering. And it just shifted my understanding a little when I thought of it that way. Because we're so conditioned to think that getting what we want will bring us happiness. That, you know, we crave something, we want something, and getting it will solve that problem of that, that craving. But as we come into practice, start to open to the Dhamma, we very quickly begin to question that as a belief, as an assumption. Does getting what we want bring us happiness? And it's quite scary to think that these days our role models in this area of having everything is Donald Trump and the Kardashians. Um, And are they happy? I mean, do they seem like happy, contented people? No. So there's, there's the, the proof there. But we still keep believing it, don't we? It, that somehow deep inside there's this conscious or subconscious belief, oh, it's just because we didn't get the right thing, or we didn't you know, do it right this time, you know, we didn't do it right in the past. If we get the right thing, have the right experience, change ourselves in a certain then it'll work out. And it's amazing how many times we can, be, we can believe that. But as we start to look at the very nature of, of craving itself, as I said, we see in that experience, it's actually suffering. In the longing, in the dissatisfaction, in the strategizing, in the separation. And we start to see that for ourselves. And so it's a direct experience of what the Buddha was pointing to. And we start to see the Four Noble Truths not as a list to memorize or believe in, but actually practices to practice. And that's part of what I want to talk about in the talk tonight, that these are practices that actually have the potential to end suffering. (coughs) This is the power of this teaching. I can remember for myself when I did my very first retreat Oh, that was many years ago now, back in the early 80s in India, with S.N. Goenka, who's my first teacher, very powerful teacher, but tough, tough kind of retreat practice. So it was a lot of suffering, literally, on that retreat, you know, hours of sitting and my body wasn't used to it. But even though I can't remember anything about the content of what he said, it's a long time ago, give me a break, you're (laughs) laughing as though I should remember... (laughs) 30 years ago or something, I do remember this clear, clear insight that he was telling me something that was true. He was acknowledging the reality of our experience, and a lot was that there is suffering, and that's just a truth of things, but he was pointing to a way out. And what I remember thinking is, oh, you mean I don't have to keep experiencing this? And not only that, I don't have to keep causing suffering in my relationships. That's the clear way I remember understanding because I felt that's what I'd done endlessly. My family and my intimate relationships in friendship, just not, you know, causing suffering, you know, not, not being kind to people or understanding people or what, letting people down in whatever way. And it was such a relief, even though, of course, it didn't happen immediately, but to know that it might be possible, that there was, someone was holding out not only the possibility, but a direct path and practice to that experience. So it's powerful as we begin to open 
to these truths for ourselves in, in our practice and understanding. So the first noble truth is the truth of suffering. You have to be really clear about this. The Buddha didn't say life is suffering or everything is suffering. He just said there is suffering. There is this noble truth of suffering. The Pali word here is dukkha, and you've heard us use this term. It's probably very familiar to to you. And we usually translate it as suffering. I I still find it's the, the best translation that conveys the range of meaning. But my understanding is the Pali word has a far greater range of meaning than we associate with suffering because it can mean the deepest and darkest sense of pain and grief and loss and and, and, uh, extreme emotion and difficulty to the subtlest level of discontent, subtlest experience of not quite rightness. And, And dukkha encompasses all of that. So people have tried to come up with different words. You can hear stress, or anguish, or unreliability, unsatisfactoriness, um, imperfection, all are pointing to this experience that we know. We don't have to look very far to know that there's suffering in life, that to have a mind in a body, human or non-human, animal, whatever, is to know suffering in our own lives, in the lives of our friends and family, certainly if you open to the wider world, enormous suffering. Just, it's, it's so in our face with the amount of news that we can get. But even here on retreat, in some ways sheltered from a lot of what's going on out there in the world, there's still a lot of suffering, isn't there? Just literally the suffering of sitting hour after hour and the aches and pains of the body. And then, of course, all of the mind states that pass through of anger or irritation or judging or loneliness or grief or despair or sadness or loss. We know this experience of suffering. And it's really important to understand it in that direct way, that it's not out there somewhere or some solid thing. Carol said something in her talk the other day that I really thought was poignant about dukkha, you know, not as something, I can't quite remember what she said, but something like this thread of unsatisfactoriness that weaves through our lives, through every life. So not necessarily these huge challenges, but just this sense of not quite rightness, of not okayness that we can experience. This is dukkha. And all of us have tried all of these different strategies in our life not to feel that, not to avoid suffering, to to try to not suffer. And we've come, I think, we're here because we've come to the realization that they didn't really work. Whatever strategies they were brought only a temporary kind of happiness. And that the Dharma, seeing clearly the wisdom of the Buddha's teachings, is a place that actually offers a truer or more reliable form of happiness. And so we come to practice to really try to understand for ourselves this, this suffering and the end of suffering. And it's interesting that all of the truths, but particularly this one, are called noble truths. 
why, why is suffering noble? You know, think noble, kind of elevated, lofty, whatever, perfected in some way. Why is suffering noble? This is an interesting question. I think suffering is noble when it brings us to practice, when it brings us to start seeing clearly, practicing, understanding the Dhamma. But I heard Gil Fronsdale say this once, and I really think it's true. It's noble when we find a path in it. When suffering actually leads us to the path of practice and coming to a way out of suffering. Ajahn Chah puts this really clearly. He says there's the kind of suffering that leads to more suffering and the kind of suffering that leads to the end of suffering. The kind of suffering that leads to the end of suffering is the suffering that we bring mindfulness to or wisdom to or understanding to that actually then becomes onward leading because we see and start to know for ourselves a way out of suffering. That's noble suffering. And the other interesting thing about the Four Noble Truths, as I said earlier, they're not just a list to memorize. You know, that I'm a card-carrying Buddhist. I, I believe the Four Noble Truths. I can pull it out of my pocket. They're actually practices. And in the teachings that the Buddha gave, he made this very clear that each of the truths has three aspects to it. And central to that is a practice. So for the first noble truth, the first aspect is there is this truth of suffering. The second and the practice is the suffering should be understood. And then the third aspect is, and it's the same schema in all of the truths, it's kind of reflective. Suffering has been understood. It's kind of a declaration of, of our own wisdom. Each of these three aspects is important. As, as practices, as contemplations. So the truth of suffering, just as I've already been talking about, not being in denial about this reality, this important aspect of experience of life. And as we come to terms with that, come to understand or accept that, we see that it's universal, it's not personal. The fact that we're suffering doesn't mean that we've done something wrong, that we haven't figured it out, that you know everyone else has got it together except me, I'm the only one suffering here. And so we don't feel like a victim. We don't feel like we've done something wrong if we're suffering. But we know this is the nature of things. And then should be understood. This word understood, someone I heard describe it, it, it means like to stand under like a waterfall when we're talking about this noble truth of suffering. So it's kind of a surrender to it. Again, we're not resisting or denying this truth, but really accepting this is the way things are and exploring its nature. What is this experience of suffering? How do I suffer? What's the nature of suffering? My suffering, other suffering, and a kind of an impersonal level of suffering. And to start to use that as a way to recognize experience. We've talked a lot about knowing or naming your experience, whether you're using the noting practice or not. You know, this is fear or this is anger or this is joy. It's actually really helpful to use the, the, the noting, oh, this is suffering. This experience right here now is suffering. 
You know, we normally think of it, oh, it's pain or it's aversion or it's loss or it's grief, but it's suffering. And there's something powerful and even humbling about acknowledging that, that I'm suffering here. And often, I said when I was teaching about compassion, it can be a doorway. Dukkha, suffering, is a doorway into compassion. So something about the naming of it, the truth of that, we just let go a little. And we just really say, oh yeah, this is really difficult. It's suffering or I'm suffering. Suffering is here. And then often the compassion can come in. So we get curious about suffering. Instead of trying to hold it at arm's length, running as fast as we can away from suffering, we're actually interested in it. This is the practice of suffering. And then to say suffering has been understood now this is an insight, and the Buddha talked about this insight as part of his awakening. He understood the nature of suffering. But for us, there are all kinds of levels to which we can make that or have that insight, from the, the deepest and most profound understanding of the nature of suffering to just this very personal experience right now of some acceptance or equanimity about the suffering that we're experiencing. And what happens then is we start to trust our capacity to be with what's difficult. This is hugely important for us as practitioners. If we're always running away, holding at arm's length, not willing to move forward or connect with experience because it might be difficult, we're always going to be kind of pulled back a little. But as we start to know this for ourselves, There's a sense of confidence or faith in our mindfulness, in our practice. So it really brings a shift that can happen. Now the Buddha in his love of lists, in this clarity of mind that he had, that Gombrich was talking about, divided suffering into three main kinds. The first kind is called dukkha dukkha. That's the dukkha of suffering, the suffering of suffering. And then the dukkha uh, that's produced by change, viparinama dukkha, and the dukkha that results because of the fact that everything is conditioned, sankara dukkha. So dukkha dukkha, that's the kind that we all know. It's just, you could call it everyday suffering. doesn't mean that it, to belittle that in any way, but as the Buddha said, this kind of suffering he, said, he described, birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair are dukkha. Not getting what you want is dukkha. Getting what you don't want is dukkha. Being separated from what or who you love is dukkha. So we recognize that, don't we? That's just the human mind in its states of distress, pain, agitation, aversion, fear, and then that not getting what we want, getting what we don't want, being separated from what we love. This we know, this is the the suffering that we can easily recognize. But then it gets more subtle, the the type of suffering that the Buddha teaches about. Viparinama dukkha is the dukkha of impermanence. The fact that everything is changing, that even good experiences come to an end. The most refined and blissful meditation state we come out of. 
unless there's some real change in the understanding, the wisdom, we're back to where we started from. This is one of his early insights that just states of bliss aren't enough to free the mind. A sunset, as beautiful as it is, it's there, it's the beauty comes from its impermanent nature. And it will end. It will end. That is just inevitable. Even something we're looking forward to, as soon as it begins, its ending is inherent in that beginning. And as we start to tune into this, we just see the, very, the fragility, the, 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 um, the lack of solidity in any experience. So we, we feel the poignancy, the suffering in that. And then Sankara Dukkha is a, is a refinement of that. It's really just seeing, not that things are impermanent, not just impermanent, they are, but all conditioned, all fabricated, all contrived in some way. And that if we're going to put our happiness on something that by its very nature is subject to change and unreliable, we're going to suffer. You might have had experiences like this in meditation of just seeing the the flimsiness of the constructs of our world. I can remember being on a long retreat, you know, deepening into practice, and then sometimes just opening the eyes after a meditation, and there was just a oh, the world, just feeling that kind of the burden that we carry around a lot of times. This is this is sankara dukkha. It's a subtle kind of dukkha. It doesn't mean you have to go looking for it, but just to acknowledge that it's there sometimes even unconsciously. We don't realize it because we haven't had a name for it. Just this, this fragility of the world, that there's nothing solid, reliable, lasting in, in our conditioned experience. So when we talk about suffering don't want to imply that everything is gloom and doom. You know, there's a, Buddhism can get a bad rap, you know, the, the, the shorthand, oh, Buddhism, it's all around suffering. I always feel I have to stand up for Buddhism. The Buddha did talk a lot about suffering, it's true. But he never talked about suffering without talking about the end of suffering. This was just, it was always right there. And so in our practice and understanding, we have to recognize that, that this is why this is such an important doorway or, or opening for us. But as we start to see and look at the nature of our lives and experience, all of our strategies, as I said, and to see we can have everything look good. You know, we can have the job we thought we wanted and a house and relationship, family, stuff, you know, material possessions, everything that society says we should have and still be unhappy, still be dissatisfied, still have some sense of incompleteness, some sense of not being fulfilled, this is dukkha, this is dukkha. It can come out of the existential questions that many of us bring to our lives. Just, you know, what is this all about? What's the purpose of a life? What's the meaning of life, to quote a famous movie? Um, not to, you know, again, go into gloom and doom, but just to really see that the answers that society has given us aren't really very satisfactory. 
and that we need to look a little deeper. We need to actually see the nature of experience to begin to find a true happiness. As the Buddha says, there is one thing, O monks, the not seeing of which keeps you bound. What is that one thing? The truth of suffering. So it's just literally saying, not seeing dukkha is going to keep us bound on the wheel of samsara, bound on the wheel of becoming. Most of us, you know, especially before we started practice, deliberately try not to see it. We have all of these strategies to avoid seeing, opening to, contemplating, experiencing suffering. Whether it's through, you know, the busyness of our lives and filling it up with stuff, with experiences, the consumption of media through all of the different means we can consume it, using drugs or intoxicants to kind of numb out a bit, whether they're prescribed or self-medicating through that kind of thing. Or defense mechanisms, you know, trying to push it away. What do they say? Denial is not a, just a river in Egypt. It, it's a strategy that we use to not feel, to not feel what's happening or to, to, to blame others for our discomfort or our suffering and feeling a victim. So we need to see that all of these are just that. They're strategies that ultimately will not work. Sooner or later, they'll cause their own suffering and they certainly won't prevent us from suffering. And we will come across some experience or many experiences that we can't keep at arm's length. I'm sure you all know this. And so we start to see the wisdom of actually turning to face the suffering, to know the suffering, not to feel more suffering, but to actually find a way out of suffering. So the Buddha's insight or understanding was that this, the suffering was caused by, intricately connected to, this tendency of craving. As I said, I really see them as, as not separate, but just to talk about it, it's helpful to separate them a little. Craving, desire, wanting. The Pali word is tanha, literally means thirst. I was listening to a talk by John Peacock. He's a teacher who often teaches at Gaia House and sometimes comes to the States. And he's a Pali scholar, so he really understands uh, the words. And he said something like, craving, the word we usually translate, uh, this word tanha, craving doesn't convey the pathos of the Pali word tanha, which literally means unquenchable thirst. And I thought it was interesting, he used this word pathos, and it made me, it was evocative because when we say pathos, there's an emotionality to what we're talking about, but also a kind of, um, it has an impact. Something, something has a kind of heaviness to it. And so this is what's being conveyed by this word tanha. You know, thirst in and of itself isn't bad or wrong. If we're thirsty, we need to drink. But It's really this unquenchable thirst. This is what this word is pointing to, never satisfied. And as we've said many times, even though the truth is described as tanha, craving, it includes not wanting, that that 
aversion is just craving something not to exist, not to experience something. So as I use this word, that's included. And again, uh, Richard Gombrich's book, talking about the Buddha and his time, uh, talked a lot about India. And I've spent many, much, a lot of time in India. I was just there a year ago leading a pilgrimage, so really exploring the holy sites, the Buddha's life and teachings. And it's very clear uh, the, that India is a very hot country. And so uh, the, imagery, the Buddha often uses imagery of fire and burning because people could relate to that, how unpleasant, how consuming that's those images of heat were. So he would often talk about craving as a burning, as the eye burning, the, the tongue burning with craving, um, and that coolness was the, um, the pleasantness, the escape from that. And then again, the three kinds of suffering, three kinds of dukkha, he talked about three kinds of desire. The first one, uh, kama tanha, is just, again, our garden variety, sensual pleasures, wanting pleasant tastes, smells, touch, sense, all of the sense desires, and even pleasant thoughts in the mind. Again, we know that one, and we can see how we can get entranced by that, how we can rule our lives, but just running after getting pleasant sensations, pleasant experiences, and trying to push away unpleasant ones. But again, it gets a little more subtle. The second kind of desire is bhavatanha, and that's desire for becoming. It's actually a desire for creating a sense of self. And again, this is where these teachings are very related to dependent origination on that cycle, in that wheel. So we go from craving to clinging, we go to becoming, and then birth, creating a being, a sense of self. And so this is a kind of craving, bhavatanha, wanting to be in existence. And we start to see all of, once we start to look, we can start to see how we do that over and over again. And even just today, how many different selves have you created? The good meditator, the bad meditator, the sleepy meditator, the clear meditator, all of these identities, the ones that are a little more persistent, being a mother or a daughter or a partner or a husband or a wife or a friend or a lover. They're all identities that we take, take up, that we have attachment to, that we perpetuate through our clinging and craving. And I've been talking to a lot of you about this, to feel the suffering in taking up a sense of self. We can actually feel that. Often we use it as a, it's a habit, it's perhaps a defense. It's easier than not. We kind of know how to respond or relate out of that sense of self. But we have to start looking at what's actually happening there. And again, in talking to you, can feel that energy that comes up in creating a sense of self. It's often a contraction, and in that contraction is limitation because we've defined a self that's not free. It's this or it's that. It's good or it's bad. So starting to look at this actual bhavatanha, the creation of self, and what that experience is actively like. And then the opposite is vibhavatanha, not wanting existence. Now literally this can mean some kind of annihilation, wanting not to exist, wanting to check out in some way. 
but it also means all the ways we deny or negate our experience. I don't like this. I don't like this part of me. I don't like myself. Self-judgment, self-hatred. This is all manifestations of vibhava tanha, which is just as much suffering as bhava tanha, perhaps more suffering. But it's all still around some form of identity and pushing that away. So we start to look at these more subtle ways that we create and get stuck in self. And when we're working in this field of desire in our practice, we start to see how slippery it is, and especially how difficult it is to see its suffering nature, because we're so entranced with the object, we don't turn and look at the experience itself. We're all, you know, it's all about the grasping and the getting of the object. Sharon Salzberg tells this great story of walking through some busy marketplace in Asia somewhere, and you know people are calling out, they're selling this and that, and she said she heard this one seller call out to her, you, you, you there, I have what you want. <laughs> and she said it just stopped her in her tracks because wouldn't you want someone, if they had what you want, like that's the shop I want to go, they have what I want. Because most of the time we don't even know what we want, we know we just want, right? We call it catalog consciousness. You know, you were, you're quite happy sitting at home, whatever the mail comes, you pick, oh, oh, and you flip through. You didn't even know you wanted a, a mint green Polartec sweater vest until it, until it appeared in the catalog. It, it just arises. This is, this is sense consciousness arising with the object. So this, and we're so entranced with the object, we don't turn and look at the nature of the desire itself. And as I said, still have that belief that the right Polartec sweater vest is going to do it for us, or whatever it is that we think is out there. And each time we forget the unsatisfactoriness of the previous experiences, or how even having something, it became old, habituated, the new object in its shininess still holds that allure. All of the people queuing outside the Apple store every time some new gadget comes out. And six months later, there's the iPad 3, and like your iPad 2 is, is no good anymore. Just today, a yogi told me a great story about this whole movement of clinging and craving and how suffering it is. She's been having a great retreat Lots of spaciousness and equanimity in her mind, just really present and clear. And she'd brought to the retreat a pair of earrings that she normally wouldn't bring. They're they're nice earrings, they're gold, gift from her husband. So they have a sentimental value, it's partly why she brought them. And she was wearing them and noticed that she'd lost one. And from this spacious, open mind, huge Clinging, craving, fear, worry, agitation, you know, all of the emotional response to the meaning of this earring and having lost it and what to do and how to find. Just It's like this huge boulder thrown into the sea of equanimity that she'd been swimming in. But, you know, she realized nothing she can do when the, it was dark by then that she would have just look for it in the morning. That's all she could do. So she said, I managed to get a good night's sleep. She was surprised, but she got a good night's sleep, didn't worry too much, but in the morning set out to find it. 
And she did. It was amazing. She found it. So flooded, joy, happiness, found the earring, you know, happy, happy, earring back. And the next moment, fear. If she lost it once, she could lose it again. It's impermanent. And just to see, you know, we think we've gotten something, and if we're really clear, it's, we can't trust even that. that. That joy and happiness at finding, grasping it again, it's not permanent. It's not going to do it for us. Yet we live our lives looking for that next hit of what's going to bring us happiness, no matter how many data points we have to know that it's not going to do it in some ultimate way. So just to see, what do we do with this force of desire? And here on retreat, I talked, I gave a whole talk about renunciation because there's not a lot, right? There's what you brought, what you get fed, and a few, you know, pillows and cushions you can kind of envy or, you know, whatever here in the Dhamma hall, but not a huge amount. Yet it's amazing what the mind can do with this force, isn't it? How many things or experiences or aspects of your day you can create craving around. It can seem endless. I had a discussion with a monk once, who'd been a monk for many years, and I said, you know, for you real renunciates, it's so much easier. You know, you don't get to choose what you eat. You don't have to worry about what you wear. Haircut, pretty simple. You know, don't have to make all these choices. And he just took his, shook his head and said, you know, it's actually not that much easier. The force of desire is just there as strong. It just fo- focuses on fewer objects. And so it's all about what kind of bowl you have or, you know, how big or small or what kind of robes. He said, the force of desire is still there. So this is really pointing to the wisdom that the Buddha brings to this understanding is to to see the desire as separate from the object. We're so entranced by the object, we forget to turn and look at the very experience of desire itself. Unless we start to do that, we are going to be led by the nose by one successive desire after another, always thinking that this next one is going to do it. Just, you know, sort of leapfrogging from one desire to another. To actually separate the two. To see that the desire is just this energy, this force that's always looking for somewhere to land. Big or small objects. Unless we actually turn and see it, we're going to always be entranced by it. Now when I say this, it doesn't mean that we can't appreciate things, have pleasant experiences, enjoy things, but it's really to look at when we get caught in that, caught in obsessing about that, caught in um, conflict almost with that, but to actually see the nature of desire itself. So the practice with the, four no, with the second noble truth is the cause of suffering is to be abandoned. This is what the Buddha says, that we're actually to let it go, not out of aversion, not saying bad, wrong, shouldn't be there, but seeing that its very nature is suffering. That if we're going to be constantly entranced by that, we are going to suffer. It's inevitable. 
And once we start to see in that way, there's a natural letting go. It's not a punishment or a a giving up of everything we love, but we see that this force of desire is actually the source of the suffering. And we start to just naturally not be so obsessed, not be so driven to get what we think we want or need to be happy. And to, to see, it's, it's not the objects that are the problem. It's our relationship to them. It's the attachment. It's the craving. It's the clinging. I, I often think of desire like these huge spotlights. You know, they have in L.A., they kind of whoosh through the night. They're these thousand million watts. I don't know how, how big they are, but it's just like going from one place to the other, swooping and swooping and moving one object to the other. Desire is like that. The Buddha's solution is take out the bulb. Just take it out. Take it out. And the coolness that comes from that. Well, sometimes we're not at the point where we're taking, ready to take out the bulb, can take out the bulb. But we can certainly put in a lower wattage bulb, right? A CFC, you know, more energy efficient. So we're not so driven by that force. We just sort of gradually let go of that need to, to keep stuffing things in, keep running after experiences. And we start to see for ourselves that it's not out there, this happiness that we know we, we have a taste of its possibility. It's not out there. So where is it if it's not out there? This is the Buddha's answer to this question is, the cure to the illness that he diagnosed, the illness of suffering, the cause of the illness is craving, tanha, thirst. The cure for this illness is nibbana. The ending of this suffering is nibbana. And it's literally, and you could almost say simply, but you know it's not so simple, the ending of greed, aversion, and delusion. This is the definition, time and time again, of Nibbāna. This word literally means cool. I spoke earlier about the fire of craving and how, you know, in India this, to be hot is really unpleasant. It's such a a common and unpleasant, inescapable experience. Nibbāna literally means cool. My understanding is, you know, you could have a sentence like, let the... Let the rice nibbana before you eat it. Let the rice cool. It's, it's, it was a common word. The Buddha took it to talk about this letting go of the flame, this suffering nature of, of desire, of wanting. And that's where the happiness, the pleasantness is to be found in actually putting out the fire. And when he's talking about this, it's not an annihilation in some sense of... Uh, are getting rid of, but really this, another word that's used is unbinding. And again, this relinquishment, this letting go that happens out of wisdom, out of seeing clearly for ourselves. And a lot of the analogies are letting the fire go out, literally taking the fuel out of the fire. So the fire has no more fuel to burn. And then it just naturally, we don't put it out, it just goes out very easily, naturally. And if you know the nature of fire, 
fire flickers, it, it sparks, it moves, it's very agitated. Nibbana is cool when the fire goes out, there's stillness. These are all pointers to the happiness that the Buddha spoke about. There's this wonderful book called The Island that is a compilation of texts, mainly from the suttas, but other sources, put together by Ajahn's Amaro and Pasano, who used to be the co-abbots at uh, Abhayagiri, our local monastery up north. Ajahn Amaro has now moved to England. It's just this wonderful, wonderful resource of all of the Buddha's teachings and other great master's teachings on Nibbana. Because we can be so caught in our process and our practice and the path that we forget what the Buddha actually spoke about as being possible. So they created this wonderful book. It's actually a dana book, so it's a little hard to get. You can get it from a Bayagiri, but it's all available online. It's a great, great resource. And really focuses attention where it needs to be. What is this promise of this path? We put in all this work, hours and hours of meditation for you who are so dedicated, coming to practice for weeks on end. What is it that we're practicing for? What is the promise of this path? So the Buddha said, it's Nibbana. It's the ending of greed, aversion, and delusion, that this is possible. This beautiful quote that is chanted, I I mentioned it in my first talk, about Nibbāna, being visible in this life, immediate, inviting, attractive, and comprehensible to the wise. Love those phrases, comprehensible to the wise. So it's not something esoteric. It's not something separate or out there. It's immediate. It's experienceable. It's inviting, visible in this life, this happiness. And so there are these wonderful pointings in the text about what this experience is like, the process leading to it, and then the actual experience. Though the Buddha often didn't talk directly or say, this is Nibbāna, because in some ways it is beyond words. And he would often talk about what it was, and it was freedom from. But there are some beautiful pointings to what it actually is. This is one from a a compilation of texts called the Udana. One who is dependent has wavering. One who is independent has no wavering. There being no wavering, there is calm. There being calm, there is no desire. There being no desire, there is no coming or going. There being no coming or going, there is no passing away or arising. There being no passing away or arising, There is neither a here, nor a there, nor an in-between the two. This, just this, is the nature, is the end of dissatisfaction. It's a little cryptic, but I hope you get a sense of this agitated mind calming and purifying and coming to an end of movement a stillness that is actually this pointer to freedom. And then again from the Udana. This world is anguished, being exposed to contact. Even what the world calls self 
is in fact unsatisfactory. For no matter upon what it conceives its conceits of identity, the fact is ever other than that which it conceives. The world whose being is to become other is committed to being, is is exposed to being, relishes only being, yet what it relishes brings fear, and what it fears brings pain. Now this holy life is lived to abandon suffering. Whatever states of being there are, of any kind, anywhere, all are impermanent, pain-haunted, and subject to change. One who sees this as it is, thus abandons craving for existence without relishing non-existence. The remainderless fading cessation nibbana comes with the utter end of all craving. So again, it's, it's a little challenging teaching, but starting to see how all of our concepts about who we are, what we take ourselves to be, what we thought would bring happiness, are actually delusions, are ways we get lost. And that the actual way to happiness is to turn towards this experience directly and see it as it actually is. See the three characteristics, anicca, dukkha, anatta, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, not self. And in seeing that, we come into alignment with the way things are. We're not in resistance to this truth of suffering. And so we actually find happiness and peace through knowing things to be as they actually are. So the practice with the Third Noble Truth is that is the cessation of suffering is to be directly experienced. This is what the Buddha recommends as a practice. But we don't have to wait until full enlightenment to experience that. Guy spoke about that last night and this morning. That we all have tasted and can know these moments of peace, of coolness, of clarity, where the mind rests in a knowing that's not touched by, not tainted by, wanting, not wanting, or confusion. That there's wisdom and clarity right there. In a moment, we've talked about, there's a, uh, some teachers who say, any moment of true mindfulness is a moment free of greed, aversion, and delusion. To actually begin to trust that, to look for that in our experience. To look for, as we said, the absence of greed, aversion, and delusion. To start to know those states for ourselves, to see that this is possible and to start to really trust that from these moments that we have had of just seeing the mind let go, being caught, being confused, being lost in struggle and turning to that experience and letting go, seeing the end of the confusion of the struggle. Again, Ajahn Chah in his wisdom says, you let go a little, you get a little peace. You let go a lot, you get a lot of peace. You let go completely, you get complete peace. 
It's that simple. That simple. And Buddhadasa again, Guy mentioned temporary nibbana. He actually said, if we didn't all have moments of temporary nibbana every day, we'd go mad. We couldn't bear the just the endless onslaught of greed, aversion, and delusion. Just walking out of the hall and looking out this at this view, the spaciousness, the the clarity, where the mind just rests for a moment. When you leave here and go and stand out under the nighttime sky and just feel that sense of opening. Perhaps whatever experience or moment of of quietness, stillness you had in the meditation this morning, these are all pointers to this quality, this knowability of Nibbana. And so we start to look for that, to trust that, to actually explore for ourselves the nature of suffering, the cause of suffering, and the experience of the end of suffering. Now, luckily, the Buddha didn't just leave it as, you know, there's this nice idea of the end of suffering. He said there's a way to that end of suffering. There's the effect, Nibbana, the cause is the Noble Eightfold Path. That's a huge teaching all on its own. But what I find so powerful about it is it speaks to every aspect of our life. Often talk about the Eightfold Path uh, in three baskets, Sila Samadhi Panya. Ethical conduct, the way we interact with others, our relationships, our livelihood. Samadhi, the development of meditation. And then Panya, wisdom. That the path includes every aspect of our life. And because it's a path, we can walk on it. It's a, it, it shows us the direction. And as the Buddha said, it goes in one direction only. When we start walking on this path, it goes in one direction only. Again, this is from the island where they say, people often find it a paradox if the goal Nibbana is by definition uncaused, it's unconditioned, it's not contrived. How can a path of practice, which is causal by nature, bring it about? It's a good question. But in the Melinda Panha, the monk Nagasena replies to this question with an analogy. He says, the path of practice doesn't cause nibbana. It simply takes you there. Just as the road to the mountain doesn't cause the mountain to come into being, it simply takes you where it already is. So we start walking this path of practice, and this is the direction it goes in, to peace and freedom and a happiness that's more reliable than any in the conditioned realm. So I'll just finish with the words of Ajahn Samedo, who says that just seeing anicca, dukkha, and anatta is limited to the conditioned realm. It is not the end of the path, nibbana. But don't hold nibbana up to some high ideal. Then we don't realize it when it's present. Bring nibbana to here and now, the point that includes everything. Nibbana is non-grasping. We just have to know what non-grasping is to recognize grasping when it happens. It's like this. You don't have to throw away everything to prove you are non-attached and to know Nibbana. So let's just sit 
in non-grasping for a moment. So our practice is to realize Nibbāna, which is visible in this very life, immediate, inviting, attractive, and comprehensible to the wise. Thank you. Attention.